Right, so I will I'll kick us off then in in about ten, fifteen seconds. Alright, hello and welcome back to Rupture Radio. It's Stearmid here, and I'm joined by Rise researcher Diana O'Dwyer. Hi! Uh, Rupture regular Owen Burns. What's crack? And People Before Profit, Dublin Bay South candidate Bridget Purcell. Hi, yes. Thank you all for joining me. So, this week we're going to be discussing some things in the news, and we'll be having a chat with Bridget about her campaign in Dublin Bay South. I think as a start on the news pieces... I think we need to talk about the recent Guardi interventions in town. People would have seen the videos on the weekend of them baton charging crowds of young people in Powers Court. And I think many of them marked how at odds this all is with the government's message of an outdoor summer. It also largely ties into a discussion about how cities like Dublin are set up and to what degree public amenities are prioritised over business needs. What do people think about this? And do they, do you expect this to become the norm for the next couple of weekends while we have the sun? Yeah, like... You see on Twitter um, all these what Dublin's like at the moment, where you see like people out in the streets and they're drinking because they've been forced out from like places like Portobello. Is it Portobello Plaza? I'm not from Dublin, so I can't give exact places names. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's now known as Portobello Plaza, but that's only a recent thing. It, it oh, was right. it was for as long as I've known it, it's been Portobello Key. I don't know where this plaza thing is coming from. But anyway. <laughs> it's gentrification. <laughs> Yeah, that's the coming in. But like they've closed down all these areas and then all of a sudden it's forcing people onto the streets into um, different parts of Dublin. And then the guards are coming along with baton charges and forcing everyone off the streets again for some reason. But uh, ultimately, like it comes down to the fact that places like Dublin are just set up to make money. Young people are expected to go to a pub and spend money. And because the pubs are closed because of the pandemic, well, they were closed. I think they're open now again. You know, people are forced to drink in the streets and then they're punished for it. So it just kind of shows how Dublin is set up to be kind of like anti, I'm not going to say anti young people, but to a point where it's, it's primarily set up to make like for profit for businesses and companies rather than an actual city where people leave compare this to like places like the Netherlands or like Berlin, for example, where they've got like a vibrant outside culture where people can go and they can go to parks and they can enjoy themselves about uh, being afraid of a, fr- a freaking guard baton, sc- cracking them over the head, you know. <laughs> but like, it just kind of highlights how, on, in this regard, like these places are set up to make profit first and foremost. I do think it's it is a kind of a real age thing as well, though. Like, I mean, this has been going on for years. Like, I remember going drinking in the Phoenix Park and like the guard before the pandemic or anything, and the guards would come along and there'd be you know people, older people sitting there having a couple of glasses of wine. They wouldn't go near them. And there'd be some group of lads with a bag of cans and they're always the ones who get the hassle. And like just seeing loads of people saying on social media that the guards are coming along and opening people's bags and like confiscating unopened cans of beer. Like, what's that about? That's just a complete violation of your civil liberties, you know? Um, And it just seems to be this attitude like that young people are trouble. And, you know, um, even with the COVID fines, um, it turns out that the vast majority of them have been imposed on young people like half of them were imposed on young people between the ages of 18 and 24 which is absolutely massive like and it's not like older people weren't breaking the 5k and the other covid rules as well 
Um, and it's just like a, an anti kind of working class thing as well, I think. Um, like some of the media coverage I was reading in the Irish Times and stuff, there, there was these business owners saying things like, oh, it's not like the normal crowd that we have here. It's like people coming in from God knows where, like, and, you know, just this real kind of snobbery and the feeling that like, you know, this isn't their city. It's the city for people who have loads of money to come and pay to dine in restaurants and things like that. Um, so I think all that is playing into it and the guards just doing their usual thing, of, you know, protecting property and profits. We like we had to like we're crying out for facilities for months and months and months. Toilets, bins, public spaces. And it wasn't until people people started giving out on Twitter about um Portobello Harbour or Plaza or Key or whatever you call it um, that you know people started to listen uh, it wasn't until you know um, the likes of Panty Bliss started giving out about it you know before nobody listened you know local celebrities start saying this is ridiculous and now we're getting bins now we're getting toilets because I went back and read a few of the papers, Irish Times, Independent, their coverage of the idea of an outdoor summer was positive up until like the last month. And it would have come from the government too, but it, it really shows that the conception of what people were talking about in outdoor summer was not imagining people out in their back gardens, like drinking. But like given how people are living now, a lot of people are living at home or they're renting, they're in precarious positions. That's not what everyone can get like. And they should be able to get out and drink in the city or socialise with their friends or anything like that. Um, it is interesting speaking to friends and family, kind of how how different people take this up. Um, and especially with the media coverage, there is more of an inclina- inclination to say, oh, well, it's, it's troublesome crowds and stuff. And I don't think anyone who communicates the positions that we're putting forward would also say that it's not right for people to cause nuisance in communities or litter or break COVID relations or fight or any of these things. Um, but I think of all the issues, it's, it, it comes down to what approach is taken to facilitating people in the city. And it's natural that after like a long lockdown, people would want to get out and socialise in the sun. We only get the sun for about two weeks. Um, and as the government had wanted but it chose to close off areas like Portobello instead of seeking to create spaces for people like Owen uh, would have said you, you've seen in other countries where they, they have gone out of their way to facilitate crowds in open areas um, and then when all these issues broke out their only response as so often it is we've seen it with Debnams as well is to send in the guards to like smash people or to just enforce enforce the law as uh, brutally as they can Um yeah, and and it's a real case that if your only solution is to crack down, then that's the only thing you'll really work towards. And, and that's, I think, a product of what we're seeing now at the moment. Dublin City Council as well just seemed to be the worst crowd of like totally backward officials who were like, what? You know, public space, public toilets, bins, that would only encourage people mm. to come in and hang around in the town. Like, and loiter this idea, like, you know, if it's young people like socialising, it's not socialising, it's anti-social behaviour and it's loitering, you know, um, just a total double standard. And um, th- like, it's just... I mean, I don't think every county council is as backward as Dublin City Council. They seem to be particularly bad. They seem to just have no concept of like what kind of a, a decent kind of urban city life could be like and how you could have a pleasant, livable city for everyone if you just invest in the public realm. Like, you know, they just seem to have no concept of that at all. The crime of loitering, like it is literally just the crime of high, like hanging around an area and doing what you're supposed to be doing as like a normal person. It's it is such a stupid thing that that's the like the language and the rhetoric that they're given. But also like you're discussing like DCC. What is it? The how many bins did they remove from Dublin since like 2008? Was it like 2000 or something like I that? Thought it was or eight, like, 
friend of the podcast, Jack Sheehan, had a, an article today in which he mentioned that the reason, like, all of these things were taken away because at the time, Dublin City Council said, oh, well, if we have um, toilets, it'll just encourage heroin use. And if we if we put in uh, bins, it'll just encourage people to, to, to stay in the area and litter, which is just outrageous. Like, But that also undermines, like, the like the anti-working class element to it. You know, it's, it's heroin users, it's drug users. Like, if we give these public amenities... They'll just be abused and, you know, us being the higher ups and know, you know, who know how things should work within the city. We don't give these like, like they, they view it as a privilege more than a right for people to have like access to these public spaces. Like they own the city when in reality, like they are accountable to people. And like it is like people should be the ones who are like saying to them, like we have the ability to come in and say we should use the spaces because it's our right to. We pay our you know, we pay our rates, we pay our taxes, blah, blah, blah. So we have we have the ability to use these spaces. And no, like no city council official or Garda can make that decision. I think it goes beyond beyond even that in terms of um, Dublin City Council just not understanding how uh, people work. The reason for taking the bins away was that people would use them, which, you know, begs the question, well, then what is a bin for? It's not there for aesthetics, you know? It's not, it's not, you know, um, I mean, maybe in some places it is, but I, I'm, I'm pretty, I've seen the things they left. They're not that nice looking. Yeah. And I think it ties into like largely the, the, the model of the city that we run or that we have is, is in my view, kind of linked into like the economic model in that the city itself moves towards profitability. Like who is the, the streets for? They're for businesses. You have tech sectors and you move, you walk into part of the city, which facilitates the tech sector and it's beautiful, but it's like, it's nowhere for people to stay. It's not meant for that type of thing. It's meant to facilitate firms being there and um, burgeoning tech sectors, upmarket restaurants for high earners um, with public amenities just being completely closed down or squeezed out and i seen during the week we won't get a chance to, to talk about it in, in depth but there was a headline that was pointed out to me a few days ago that microsoft um their irish sub uh subsidiary had paid zero corporation tax on 220 billion profit last year um and you have to question like where does that go back into what like if if these if the city's in service of these things but we still have housing crisis health crisis like who is it set up for and i think that is like i think i think it's really interesting that finnegale Finnefall, the greens labor will jump through hoops to make ireland as business friendly and corp- multinational corporation friendly as possible um, and tout that it's for jobs and, and say that, you know, oh, it's it's for employment. Look at all the great stuff that they do. When in reality, like we saw with the Microsoft thing, they don't contribute at all. I, I, I when I was unemployed, I was contributing more. <laughs> I was contributing more to society because I was paying VAT on the things I owned, um, you know, or the things I was buying. Um, I was paying more in tax. Oh, I, w- I will just say that the point that Bridget makes there ties into largely a, a lot of the commentary kind of on this podcast, but elsewhere during the pandemic, you, you did see who the society kind of rests for, but who it's also made for. And it rests on the work of essential workers, people who go into work every day um, in retail sector or any under industry. Whereas the, who the city's made for is like, a tiny, tiny elite, but that elite, like Bridget says, contributes very little in comparison to those workers. Um, and we've seen things slow down quite 
like astonishingly over the last couple of months and now they're seeking to like return to the logic or the kind of um facade that that was there beforehand another thing um before we move on it that's permanently in the news is the housing crisis so during the week pbp put forward a housing bill which proposed that the state would guarantee the right to housing for all and would delimit the right to private property where necessary in order to achieve this effectively it was proposing to stop the market from determining who gets housing in a surprise turn, it kind of looked like the government will not oppose this and will let it advance to the next stage, but it looks very, very likely that they'll sweep it under the carpet at the later stages. They've done this for many other bills, we would have remarked last year, about how much they were using that money message mechanism to kind of block bills, um, but even without that, they are able to let things go into a further stage and then strangle it when no one's, when no one's watching. Uh, yeah, and they've done this repeatedly with opposition bills. Uh, what do people think of this? And I guess it, while Ron housing of the issue at large. Um, just working in the dole, one interesting thing about this was that the day after Pete for Profit had our bill with the right to housing, Fianna Fáil senators moved a bill in the Senate for the right to housing. And I'd say they probably had planned to do that before. Like, I don't think they were able to get that on the agenda that quickly, but they have like a more watered down wording of it, which basically makes it this kind of aspirational thing that like, you know, if there's enough money, then maybe you'll have somewhat of a better right to housing than you do at the moment. Whereas the people before profit bill says that right resources have to be prioritized so that people have a right to housing, which is like much stronger and really different. And um, the Taoiseach, when he was asked about this, he was like, oh, you know, we don't oppose the idea of this. We just might have an issue with your wording kind of thing. Um, so I think what they're trying to do is like, they're also setting up a housing commission and the housing commission is supposedly going to look at all this stuff around housing and it's going to look at the issue of a referendum um, on a right to housing and that'll just take ages and drag on for years. And so they'll just delay, delay, delay for as long as possible so they can still keep using the excuse like anytime that comes up about like rent controls or security of tenure, it's like, oh, I'm going to clutch the constitution to my chest and say like, oh, that can't happen because of the constitution. We have to have a referendum, but then like they just today having a referendum. It's the exact same thing they used to do with abortion rights and repeal the eighth. So that's the thing that kept popping into my head was like, they're going to delay this as long as possible and they're going to try and water it down as much as possible. And like, so we just have to really try and fight and keep it on the agenda all the time. Like that, you know, housing is a right, not a privilege. And I think it's good. Like there's a big coalition behind it. Like there was a lot of different housing NGOs and the National Housing and Homes Coalition backing this like very strongly and people are really angry about housing so I think it's a good time for us all to to put a big push on it you know It's funny that when he says I just don't agree with the wording he means that it's like too definite and it needs to be made less definite so that we can just never do it Um. (laughs) I do find it funny that they're tying like this right to housing to like a financial thing like a right is a right you don't you know you don't limit a right depending on how much money that you have but also, they're probably scared because most of them are landlords themselves, for fuck's sake. Was it one third of the last stall was um, all landlords? So they know if, you know, you start putting in these things into the Constitution, you know, the right to housing, you know, rent controls, building social housing for people who live in Dublin or across the country, you know, they're going to lose out. You know, and it, it shows kind of like how closely tied the political classes within Ireland and kind of like the kind of like the, the bourgeois class of Ireland are so closely connected because their interests are one and the same. So if you start like 
putting these things into the constitution and kind of reaffirming it. You see, you've seen this elsewhere. Like, I think this happened in South Africa with the right to water, you know, like the, the government literally took the entire, um, like right to water through the entire like constitutional court system because they were tied to the, what the, the business classes who owned the, you know, the water at that point, it, it, it just keeps happening over and over and over again. It, un- it reveals why the system is set up in this way and that the interests of the establishment, they have their own interests in being landlords themselves, but they also represent the interests of like landlords writ large or businesses writ large um, and at all times are, are, are in favour of putting it down to the laws of supply and demand of the market as a never ending like kind of gospel. And we can't diverge from that because that spells danger. Um, But in reality, I think it's not going to come down to the doll to do this. I think what's needed is like a big housing movement. Um, It's encouraging what Diana was saying, that you do have like a kind of coalition forming around this. And I think it's going to be a live issue for the next month or so. Um, But people really do need to get active on the issue because in the absence of that, like the establishment parties will continue to talk about change without actually changing anything. And when it comes down to it, like with repeal or with the water charges or anything like that, it rarely is the government, the establishment parties just pushing something through. They need to be pushed. Um, And even at that, it's a, it's a movement like coming to the fore that really, I think, enacts the change itself. I do think the government are, are kind of shitting themselves a bit about housing at the moment, though. You know, that whole thing about the vulture funds buying up whole housing estates, the type of estates that first time buyers would normally buy, like in Kildare and stuff like that really kind of hit them because um, they would see that as like their kind of potential future voting basis, you know, people who can afford to buy a house and they're the kind of people they want to be voting for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael in the future. Um, so like that really upset them in a way that they don't care at all about like people who are renting or people who are in social housing because like they're like, oh, well, they're not going to vote for us anyway. So who cares about them? Like they're going to go and vote for the left or, you know, um, but I think now, like, the housing crisis has gotten so big and so universal nearly, like, it's affecting people all across society. And now the government is starting to get really worried about it. So, say, during a couple of weeks ago, it came out that, like, there's now going to be a double rent hike of 8% because landlords couldn't do their 4% a year during um, the pandemic. Um, and they've said that they're going to put that off now until January or something. And it's just another really cynical thing, like, because it was going to happen probably around the t- time of the by-election in Dublin Bay South like and they couldn't have that you know they didn't want it becoming like an immediate kind of election issue for them so they've kind of put it off um, just for a few months until January but even the fact that they were forced to do that and that they kind of almost panicked over it and were like oh we'll do something about it straight away like it shows a real weakness there um, whereas before I think Fina Gale were quite like they they were really just didn't care about um, housing as an issue that was affecting people they could be quite heartless they had people like Connor Skane like actually heading up the housing agency and saying things like oh um, the problem is Dublin City Council is providing too many ser- homeless services you know attracting people to use them again this type of attitude you know um, whereas now they're having to kind of at least make some shapes about caring about it to some extent and you know I think it's it's a good time to to really try and get the housing movement going like with the restrictions being lifted and all that over the next like, one of the more concerning things I've, I've noticed is that 
like due to the inactivity of the government operating on these things, as, as Diana already has previously highlighted, you know, it actually allows like sections of the far right to come forward and talk about these issues as well, because like pointing to, you know, the fact like migrants and stuff like that, we've seen um, for, uh, organizations of the far right, like leafleting specifically on this issue and like pointing to like, how's the Irish first? And it's, <laughs> and, but that kind of like this inactivity fuels that, behavior and that actions because they're able to pull people in on that basis when it's not as dan has already pointed out it's on the those grounds more than anything else yeah and i think at root is um really it is a problem of the government's making in that last term i think it was michael noon and what like created the kind of legal conditions um, during the last recession for international capital to come in in the form of vulture funds and buy up like swathes of land and property. And that has continued since then. Um, and it's just set up in that way. And, and I think now with the presence of the left in a, in a slightly more uh, established form, they're more conscious of how that can get picked up. But what Owen is saying there about um, the far right, we had seen like locally they have they have uh, stickers all over the place with how's the Irish first. And obviously that's like an emotive issue because nearly everybody knows somebody in precarity. Like they're pe- like people in their mid-twenties living with families um, and they're looking for an answer. And obviously like the, the answers are out there, but it's not like migrants or not other, uh, other po- like sections of Irish society other than, well, the establishment ruling class. I think there's been a housing crisis for a decade now, more than a decade now. Um, Everyone I know also believes that there's been a housing crisis for a very long time. Now the government seems to think there was a housing crisis. And it's funny what what it sees as the, the kind of tipping point for something to be a crisis or not. It wasn't until like middle class people were affected that it's a, that it's a housing crisis. And you hear this stuff about like, the protections of vulture, you know, the vulture funds only being allowed to buy 10 houses or less than 10 houses um, in one go. Not those rules, not being applied to apartments as if like if you are living in an apartment, you know, you're not worth protecting. Um, it's kind of an attitude that, that I think we've been seeing for a long time. Those living in the inner city, you know, those living in, you know, apartments in the inner city. They don't need to be protected quite as much, even though, you know, they've been saying for a long time that rent is outrageous. And then the response has always been like from your man, um, Connor Skeen, um, you know, just move away. Like, just, just, just move to Kerry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can't even move to Cork anymore. I, you know, <laughs> they, their, their prices are skyrocketing yeah. as well. The, the answer seems to always the uh from the government from from those who prop up the government that um you know it's your fault that the housing prices are the way they are like rounded about if you really like look at the situation under a microscope it all comes back down to you as an individual made some poor choices um you know maybe it was straight out of the leaving cert maybe it was you know which parents you had you know uh you made a poor choice um and now now you're not going to be um, facilitated at all. Like you can see comparisons in terms of how the economic system affects both workers and renters in that both are in precarity. Um, 
both are kind of like scrambling for some form of stability in rent in living conditions or a wage or are just like have been just thrown into the abyss with this um this pandemic and i think we've seen in both sectors people getting organized obviously very encouraging stuff in debenhams and esb uh, hovis workers as well and then in in the grounds of renting you do have like people getting active in this housing movement there's also organizations active around the area like pbp itself or katu or anything like that and obviously there has been a way of organization and and i think that's an extremely uh, positive aspect of this yeah like i think um hopefully it's at a bit of a tipping point because like as widget was saying like this housing crisis has been going on for years you know you had a housing bubble with massive mortgages then you had like negative equity people losing their homes you know economic crash and then rents going up again like there's always kind of a housing crisis and you know the the government actually declared housing and homeless situation to be a national emergency three years ago in 2018 and they just didn't do anything about it so like even they acknowledge like it's been in crisis for a long time but I think I think it's a little bit like the water charges like one of the big kind of galvanizing things about the water charges was this was something that affected everybody everybody had to pay it you know and the housing crisis has now been rumbling along and gotten so bad that it affects like the vast majority of people in society now like even better off um older kind of working class and middle class people who own their own home. They have like their kids in their twenties or whatever, still living at home, aren't able to move out and, you know, wrecking their heads or whatever, or, you know, unable to go out and start a life. Like it's just affecting like such a big section of society now that I think maybe it has hit that kind of water charger style tipping point. Whereas before they're able to kind of, you know, still rely on the fact that there's a good chunk of society whose interests are in rising house prices, who see like housing being unaffordable as a good thing because it means their house is worth more or like their landlords and, you know, like, what's a crisis for some people is like a wealth making opportunity for a good other chunk of people and that's kind of you know one of the big yeah, underlying absolutely. divisions around it but now i think it's just snowballed to such an extent that like it's just huge you know just just to move on like something else that i think that has been pushed off and um, but has come back into the news was the commission of investigations report into the mother and baby homes there was some findings and i think diana you had been uh, taking a look at this yeah, basically what happened was um, one of the commissioners, Professor Mary Daly, who's a historian, um, went and did a seminar in Oxford University. And what was interesting about this was that previously, like nobody from the commission had been willing to appear like at an Oireachtas committee on it, despite being asked loads of times to come and like account for um, the absolute disgraceful whitewash that was the Mother and Baby Homes report. Like I remember reading it for and just being shocked they were just like I think one of the most shocking things about it was they just wholesale said that there was no evidence of forced adoptions and like what have we all been talking about but like you know women separated from their babies like and the heartache that that caused people you know for decades and they just straight up said oh you know it's not that um and then they were just totally unaccountable wouldn't appear anywhere but she agreed to appear at this academic seminar. Um, and basically it was pretty shocking because she just, people had suspected that um, the testimonies that survivors gave, like the women who had been in these homes had given to 
this thing called the Confidential Committee, which was kind of set up under the apparatus of the commission, but was sort of separate to this other investigation committee, had felt that like not much of what they had said had been incorporated in the report. And you could see that reading the report, like it would say, um, oh, this known, this social worker said X, Y, Z. And then there was just, they might have something from a survivor at the end, but it was almost like an afterthought. And like she basically said in the seminar, oh, well, we couldn't really incorporate what the survivors said because like it wasn't to the same kind of legal standard um, as the evidence that we got from the nuns and from the institutions. So they basically treated what authority, authority figures and institutions and the church said as, quote, unquote, evidence. And then the stuff that the survivors said about their experiences was just kind of, I don't know, a bit of colour or something. You know, that's almost how they treated it. You know, they're just treated it as not having the same standard at all. And the exact same thing they did with the Magdalene report before, where they just basically, they structure it in such a way that they're saying they don't really believe survivors and that they're going to go with the kind of what the what the abusers, the perpetrators of abuse in this situation said, rather than what the victims and the survivors said. And she was asked, like, oh, why did you do this? And like, kind of her explanation was that they were afraid of being sued, basically, um, by the church and the institutions. And therefore, they had to be very careful in what they were saying. And then the other excuse was that it just would have taken too much time, you know, to check out what the survivors had said and incorporate it. And she was like, oh, that would have been loads of work. God forbid. You know? <laughs> and like the survivors just, you know, yeah. completely outraged by Imagine them. having to do your job, you know? <laughs> yeah, do your job. It's just shocking. Like they only spend half of their budget as well. Like, have you ever heard of any anything like this, like spending, you know, half of its budget? Like they didn't want to find out what the story was clearly, you know? Um, so like... It's just shocking and it's really re-traumatized a lot of survivors, I think. Um, But this definitely isn't the end of it. I think survivors are much more organized than they were, say, at the time of the Magdalene report, where they were able to successfully just bury that. Like a lot of the women were very old and just not in any kind of situation to be able to really be challenging it in a long way. Whereas a lot of the survivors in mother and baby homes are kind of younger because they were the babies in the homes and, you know, they're fighting on on behalf of um, themselves, you know, and their birth mothers and so on. So like, it's, I don't think this is going away for the government. Um, Yeah. It's going to be an issue for, for ongoing time. I'd say. It's so wild to me that, you know, that the commission only used half of its budget. Um, That's, so completely insane. Um, it, I mean, also, I mean, another huge glaring problem with that commission is the, is the suggestion that, um, no redress is owed to people, uh, to, to, to women from who were in the mother and baby homes after 1974, because that's when the lone yeah, mother or the, the yeah. unmarried mother allowance became a thing. That is also like that. Uh, like I just, I that I can't wrap my head around. That I really can't wrap my head around. How anybody would think that is remotely appropriate. Mm, I I don't know, Diana. I know you had um written that we talked about an article before in terms of like ownership. A lot of health services is still under the nuns and the maternity orders. Um, do you see that this like what you were saying about uh, victims being more organised, and certainly what Bridget was saying about a higher level of distrust or um, 
like an inclination not for these orders to continue owning it is there any like where where does this go from here what is the plan one for the report um what bridge was saying are they seeking to just sweep this under the carpet or uh, or is there something else that we can maybe hope on yeah like i think it's another of those situations where like the government and the whole state like are protecting like the old order, the kind of old way of things to the end and moving as little as, as possible, you know? Um, so, you know, they're still kind of covering, covering up for the Catholic church and their historical crimes against women, you know, and they're trying to minimize it, minimize the redress bill for the state and for the church by whitewashing this, you know, and just downplaying the central issue of like forced and illegal adoptions and then trying to say, oh, there wasn't as much abuse as there was in industrial schools. You know, there wasn't as much physical or sexual abuse or, you know, and it's all about reducing the bill and kind of, you know, playing it down and, and all that. Um, and I think, um, like, I don't think they realise the extent to which, you know, society and the working class as a whole have really been radicalised by the crimes of the Catholic Church, like from the sex abuse scandals to the denial of abortion rights and how, like, you know, the equal marriage and the abortion referendum have just really pushed things forward where like the vast majority of people are just like, this is outrageous. Of course, the church and state should have to pay major redress for all this. Of course, they should admit to everything that they've done. Like, I think your average person on the street believes the survivors, not this report and not the whitewashed, sanitized version of history that's been given in this report. Um, and I also think your average person in the street would say, there's no way yeah. the nuns, the yeah. same order of nuns who ran loaded these mother and baby homes should have any role in relation to the National Maternity Hospital. Like, it's just crazy and completely wrong. Mm. Similarly, I think they would also think that you know, the church should not have any role in a sex education of children in schools, but they still own 90% of primary schools. So they still control the sex education curriculum. Um, and just there, like a few weeks ago, the Catholic Church published guidance about the new sex education curriculum that said that, oh, we have to stick to, you know, the teaching that we've always had, that sex should only happen within marriage, you know. Um, so basically what they're saying is like, not alone should you not have sex outside marriage, you know, if you're straight, but if you're queer, if you're LGBT, you should never have sex, you know, you should be celibate, you know? I mean, it's just bonkers stuff. And like anyone can see it's completely backward. So I do think this is a, another situation where you've got this big kind of division between the establishment, the political class who like still think it's okay to hand over the National Maternity Hospital and sex education to the Catholic Church and like the vast majority of ordinary people who are just like, what? No, this can't happen. So um, I think they'll be dragged kicking and, and, and screaming towards more separation of church and state. But again, it's a thing they have to be pushed on, you know, from below constantly to actually make it happen. Yeah, for sure. And uh, there's a need to, like, I think, uh, once again, get people active on this issue. And it seems like there is more, certainly. Um, but just on ownership of uh, medical services and things like that, if people are interested in more information on that, me and Dan, I did an episode um, in December, which I'll link below on Ireland's permanent healthcare crisis. Um, just to move off, because there's obviously so much to pack into this uh, week. It's been a while since we did a news panel. Um 
moving on to what is the main event and hopefully something a little bit more uh, promising is the Dublin Bay South by-election. So many would know that on April 27th, 2021, former Minister for Housing Owen Murphy resigned in Dáil Éireann to announce he would be leaving politics for something equally evil, but no doubt just as lucrative, uh, international affairs. <laughs> This has caused a by-election, which hasn't actually been called yet, but I imagine it'll be called next week, uh, in which each of the parties have chosen chosen their very best to stand, but in most cases that doesn't amount for very much. Uh, so before talking to what I think is probably the only good candidate in the race, we thought we'd take a look at what's on offer. And kicking us off is, I think, Diana, taking a look at Fina Gale's chosen one. So, Diana, who is James Gagan? Uh, indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he's he's a funny character in a sense that he's tried to run portraying himself as the exact opposite of what he actually is. Like he was saying, oh, I'm going to be a voice for the locked out generation and a progressive figure who supported repeal, whereas actually um, he owns like a really expensive house. He's from like a three generations of Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael royalty. Um, he's, a, he's grandfather was a Fianna Fáil minister for justice. Um, he left Fianna Gael to set up um, Renua, which was set up on the basis of being like a um, a right wing anti abortion rights version of Fianna Gael. You know, so it's just bizarre that like he thinks nobody will find out about this. And also in his day job, um, he was a t- big tobacco lobbyist for years. So he's really almost like a cartoon villain in a way, uh, <laughs> this election, I think, um, but kind of more boring and less charismatic than a cartoon villain, you know. Um, I just like the idea of like this guy tying the working class to like a railroad track while like the train comes towards <laughs> them, <laughs> like sitting, like grasping his hands. Like Finnegan just have like, their whole PR thing is just to create one type of guy. And that type of guy is like the twee kind of Simon Harris affect progress, like blue shirted, open top button, standing in parks, pictures with his family, all this sort of stuff. Like I'm, I'm so friendly and cuddly, but in reality, you only have to look like under the surface. But it is funny how they don't have any variety. It all, it is all just like you're Simon Harris and you're Simon Harris and you're Simon Harris. I think that covers Gagan, and I think we should move on to the next um, starlet is Deirdre Conroy, who came on scene with a very funny video where they had all the um, Fianna Fáil reps like saying, who is it? And in like very, um, I don't know, very dramatic effects. And then she speaks for like two seconds uh, and that's her, her promo video. But it has come out over the last co- that last while that um, her past, her dark past as a landlord, where she had her own blog, where she um, kind of had some weird views in terms of foreign tenants. Like she was asked in the blog, should I have foreign tenants? And she said, oh, well, it's actually best to stick with what you know um, and stick with Irish people, basically. So it's um, a very progressive candidate from Fianna Fáil as well. Um, but they have also been seeking to build her up as a progressive candidate by focusing on her credentials, on the fact that she instituted proceedings in 2002 in the European Court of Human Rights, um, objecting to the need to travel abroad for an abortion in the case of lethal fetal abnormality, um, which is, of course, like, that's uh, a decent in the context of 2002, but extremely cynical for Fianna Fáil, given their role um, as the enforcer of the Eighth Amendment uh, through the years. Like even at that time, her case was brought under a Fianna Fáil government with Michal Martin as Minister for Health opposing her, speaking out on the issue multiple times. But of course, having that like 
change of heart or or sitting on the fence in in like during repeal um and that doesn't even get into the fact that um the repeal legislation is still completely flawed we're going to be doing an episode on this later in the month um but yeah and and this is under the government of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael despite other groups bringing this up was it Conroy who was the one who like Harry Pottered her son or nephew or something like that by keeping him under the stair- stairs. <laughs> like, I, I'm worried that she was more concerned about Death Eaters than the housing crisis at that point. <laughs> like, oh god, I can't believe I just made that joke. Yeah, and then finally, I think that, like, worst of the worst three, anyway, in my view, is uh, Labour's candidate, <laughs> um, Ivana Basic. Yeah, I think one thing about Basic, I actually got one of those targeted Facebook ads for her campaign um, just earlier on today, and it's old footage of her in black and white footage of her in the 90s when she was a student, um, you know, defying the laws and giving out abortion information, which obviously was good, but that was in the 90s. Like, there's a reason, like, why they're kind of foregrounding that, because, like, her record since even on abortion isn't that great, like, because she was in the Labour Party um, during a time period in which they were blocking um, bills that were put forward by the socialist left in the Dáil for a repeal referendum, you know. Um, she was in the Labour Party when Labour were in government and were opposed to having a referendum on repeal. And also when they brought in the Protection of Life during Pregnancy Act, which brought in the 14-year prison sentence um, for anyone procuring or helping like a woman to have an abortion or a woman having an abortion unless her life was in danger, you know, and the Labour Party over that or, you know. Um, so I think even on her one issue, like, um, she hasn't been the best. And then on everything else, um, her record is, is obviously even worse um, as a, a sort of a, a liberal feminist. Um, I think, I think, a, I think a big thing with all of this is that, uh, you know, Labour are trying to rebrand themselves as being socialist, which is like, show me where <laughs> Labour is socialist um, and being pro-worker. But like at the end of the day, like, I mean, they're obvious. I mean, just take a look at their track record. I think if anybody from Labour is listening to this, just look, just look at the way that they voted. Look at the way Labour has voted in the past and 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 then try to justify that they are pro-worker. Yeah, I think there there, there is um, there's a real attempt by all of these parties, especially um I think it's most striking with Labour who poses themselves as left on certain issues. Um but it is a conscious endeavor for all of these parties to divorce the social from the economic and to talk about oh well the, the all these people have all of our candidates have very positive views on social issues so are now in favor of repeal even though Gagan was not in the past or are in favor look at all these things that they've done on these grounds in the past but are still pushing through the same economic agenda which will target the um, most precarious in society and essentially establish the same model that we're going on um, that does so much damage and I think it's quite clear with a few of them Um, but just just to move on I think given we've gone through the clown car of candidates I think it's only right that we've chat with one of the good candidates in the race uh, Bridget Um, so this is a first time campaign for you and I guess just to start like what what got you active and what made you want to run yeah um Thank you for saying I'm a good candidate. I hope I... I am a good candidate. I'm going to say it. I'm a good candidate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, to be confident. What made me run... Um, what made me kind of politically active was... Uh, you know, I was always fairly politically engaged and politically active for like 
outside of party politics, like with repeal, with marriage ref, um, what kind of made my brain kind of engage into like I I I can't be apathetic about about stuff anymore. I need to I need to like actually get properly involved. Um, was the Debenhams picket? Um, I was at that time. I had just been laid off, uh, because of COVID from my bartending job. Um, it was. That was an ordeal in in and of itself, but um, I, I I I was seeing these workers who had really been hard done by um, and really just abandoned and uh, and not even allowed protest at the early days, um, and it you know it made me it it you know I started going down to the pickets because I wanted to support them. Um, they were they were. You know, I thought that their struggle was fairly similar to my own. Not the same, but like all workers' struggles are workers' struggles and you need to show solidarity. So me being down at the picket fairly regularly, I got to, you kind of, you kind of get to know the other people who are also supporting the picket. And for the most part, the people who were down there were people before profit people, also socialist party people. Um, and, um, I decided that like, you know, I can't just like, sit by sit by and just like give out on Twitter <laughs> you know I can't be doing that anymore I need to actually engage more um so then I joined people before profit um we made a I was like um you know I my membership in uh Dublin Bay South made it more um apparent that there needed to be a a branch for Rings End. So we made a branch at Rings End. I'm the convener of that. Um I was um we were in need Dublin Bay South was in need of a rep. Um I was, you know, I have no children. I have no, you know, aside from work uh, and just kind of surviving. I don't have a lot of other, you know, responsibilities. Um so I was like, I'll be the rep, that's grand. And then Owen Murphy resigned. And, and, uh, and I was like, wow, okay, baptism, baptism of fire. I'm going to have to like, I'm going to have to run. But, um, I'm, I'm confident that, uh, I, I mean, I stand by all of, I stand by people, people before profits, um, policies. I, you know, I am not a landlord. I am not a tobacco lobbyist. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, that's that's kind of what kind of got me engaged. That's why I'm running. Um, I, I genuinely believe that uh, there needs to be younger voices and voices that are used to precarious work, uh, voices that can represent those people, voices that can represent renters. That's kind of why I'm running. I think I would be a good candidate. I think I could represent people who aren't currently represented. And yep, that's that's my little that's my little sound bit. <laughs> And like, what would you see as being like the big kind of issues locally, like, um, like in the constituency, like say, I know Dublin side is often portrayed as being like this really rich constituency, but actually, you know, it's a lot more like varied than that. Like there's a lot more kind of normal people living um, in the constituency than you think from the way it's talked about. Like, so like, what would you think are the more kind of local issues that are affecting people like, and that you're going to take up in the campaign? I think a big issue with Dublin Bay South is, you know, um, that despite the fact that it's, I think the richest is one of the richest constituencies in Ireland. It's also, it also has a huge amount of poverty. 
um, which people affected by poverty never seem to be represented by the TDs who are elected here. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of that is because of a fairly successful campaign to demoralize the working class in this area. Um, 50% of people living in Dublin Bay South are renters, um, which is pretty high. Um, that's extremely high. Um, and again, they're not being represented currently in the doll. I think 32%, 31% of the TDs in the doll are landlords. So got to change that. Um, <laughs> the, um, I think a bit for, for me anyway, uh, a thing that I've been trying to focus on a lot is, um, uh, I think a, a massive issue that isn't being looked at is, um, by the, by the, the government parties is, um, council housing. Um, and the absolute lack of maintenance going on in council housing. I've, I'd say for most of my casework, people getting in contact with me and sharing issues that they have, it is council housing that is the, the, their main issue. And the, the fact that Dublin City Council has allowed a lot of this housing to just fall into disrepair, fall into decay, um, and just not, maintaining it adequately despite the fact that people living despite the fact that okay leo says it's a free house it's not a free house you pay rent on a council house and that rent goes towards the upkeep of the council the council housing whether that's maintenance for a block of flats or maintenance for you know a council house in and of itself you're paying rent to go towards that the same way that any renter is paying rent uh, and should should like should and it's not the case but should um have repairs done immediately or in a timely manner when they needs be because they're paying rent for not just to live in a house but also to live in a house that's maintained a lot of a, a, a lot of um a lot of the inner city council housing is falling into disrepair and i the reason for that is because um that land is worth millions and millions of euro and some city council wants to clear out that land to sell off or to make you know um the usual story hotels empty offices luxury apartments that nobody lives in or like sell it to google for them to make you know accommodation and um and the way to do it is is to um just neglect the neglect um neglect the council housing uh allow it to get so bad that it needs to be condemned uh move the people living there into the suburbs and then demolishing everything and uprooting them from their communities from uh you know the kids their kids schools their jobs just throwing their lives into disarray purely to make a little extra cash or appease google or whatever their motives are. Um, that's a huge, that's a huge fact. That's a huge thing that I'm concerned about. Uh, and it's a thing that I'm going to be focusing on. Um, another one is, uh, environmental issues, particularly, um, what's going on in Dublin Bay with the rings and water treatment plant. Oh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm blue in the face talking about it. There's huge issues with the rings and water treatment plant. 
they um they treat a third of the the third of the country's uh wastewater um but are not able to keep up with it um which is why they dump about 74 olympic swimming pools of human effluent into the bay uh, every month it's it means that you know it means that the bay is closed or not the bay it means that one in five swimmers become sick uh it means that um beaches get closed um it means um you know a big thing that people forget is that uh Dublin Bay is actually a UNESCO biosphere um it's it's protected it's a UNESCO protected biosphere and it's also the only biosphere that contains uh, a capital city within the EU it's ex- it's extremely unique we have a lot of unique flora and fauna here and um they are they're they're in danger because of the amount of effluent that's that we just pour into the into the bay um it's uh there's huge algae growths and the smell in rings end is disgusting it's it's quite bleak um and it's oper it's managed by i'm going to use air quotes it's managed because uh, Irish Water manages it, air quotes, um, but they outsource they outsource a lot of their um, the work that needs to be done. They don't do adequate um, water. Uh, they don't adequately check the quality of the water. They do it once a week, uh, and that's only during the bathing months, which is uh, May to September, uh, when it, when the EPA has been telling us to do that daily. Um, and they just don't do it. So we have no idea how bad the water actually is. Uh, we just have, we just have a snapshot of how bad the water is once a week, um, during the bathing months, which is, you know, uh, pretty bad. Um, notably, this is the constituency of Eamon Ryan, who was voted in because people were concerned about the environment and he's essentially abandoned them. Surprise, surprise. Um, Irish Water says they're not going to do anything until 2025. Um, my position is that we don't have that long. Um, and if this, if people are getting sick, getting diarrhea, getting rashes from swimming in the water now, what's another three, four years going to do? You know, it's just going to exacerbate the problem. And yeah, that's a, that's another big concern of mine. Also general housing, housing for everybody, housing for anybody who needs it. I'm just gonna kind of wrap up because I know I've been talking for a long time. <laughs> Sorry, but uh, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yeah, apologies. For that. No, it's no problem. Fights. It really isn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a never ending list of things that need to be covered and that are also not being considered by any of the uh, parties or the vast majority of TDs that are in there. So yeah, absolutely. I have more than two issues that I'm concerned about. Don't worry, folks. <laughs> I have I've, I've lots of issues. <laughs> so you've clearly highlighted how like you're the best candidate in the area. So. Thank you so much. <laughs> so what, how can like our listeners who would want to support you, how can they go about doing that? Is there a place they can donate or is it a way of help canvassing? Or, um... Yeah, um, if you want to um, participate in some canvassing, I'd love some canvassers. We have quite a few. I'm very, I've been really, really... Um, Really, really shocked about the the amount of people who come out. Um, if if anybody wants to help with canvassing for my uh, campaign, I'm not going to stop them. Uh, you can contact me uh, via social media. My Twitter is Bridget Purcell, all one word. 
Um, my Instagram is uh, Bridget Purcell underscore PVP. Um, my Facebook is Bridget Purcell PVP. I really should have thought about making them all the same, but I didn't. And now they're printed on a we'll- bunch <laughs> of flyers. So I can't change it. We'll link them. We'll link. We'll, <laughs> everything be will be linked anyway. And, uh, we also have a PayPal, um, a PayPal that I will give you the link for. So if you want to contribute monetarily, by all means, I would also like that. Yeah. Uh, it should be noted that, that PVP candidates often, we're not running with the backing of big business or like the other parties. Um, so absolutely great for people to contribute. And uh, and yeah, get out if you want to. We'll link up uh, all of Bridges things in the uh, episode description anything else Bridget do you want a last word or register to vote register to vote if you're renting if you're renting and your vote's at home that's no good to you register to vote I don't care if your vote's in Cavan <laughs> change it change it because you're not living in Cavan now you're living in Dublin South so change your vote <laughs> have it down here and do it within do it in time it's nice and easy just register to vote and then vote for me Give me your number one. <laughs> yeah, that's the important part. <laughs> Don't <laughs> register if you're not going to vote for Bridget, but do register if you are. <laughs> um, no, no, register anyway, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. I don't yeah. know if, if we should be... Our socialist obligated to people, tell people to vote. I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, I think we should leave it there. This is a monster of an episode. We've covered quite a lot. Um, and I guess I'll just say, so thanks a million, Owen and Diana, for joining me. And... More than anything else, thanks a million, Bridget, for sitting down with us. It was an absolute pleasure. And uh, we'd encourage everybody to get out and support. Thanks a million. Thank you. See See you later. later. Bye, bye, bye. Right, I'm going to finish that recording. You wake up and your head's fucked. You stick your trousers on and you lost bit of makeup. 